Hello, wherever you are in the world today, welcome to Beyond the Art in our series, The Stories That Carry Us. I'm your host, Craig Beaumont Flynn, a citizen of the Cherokee Nation and the Delaware Tribe of Indians. In each episode, we will discuss with various Native American artists, influencers, art leaders, and everyone in between their experiences, the communities they serve, and the translation and interpretation of the Native American art world today. Well, today we have John Lukovic, Curator of Native American Arts and Head of the Native American Arts Department at the Denver Art Museum. Uh, John, welcome to the show today. Thanks for having me, Gray. I really appreciate it. So tell us a little bit about what you do at uh, Denver Art Museum. Sure, yeah. Uh, so my official title is the Andrew W. Mellon Curator of Native Arts, and I'm the head of the Native Arts Department, which here at DAM includes um, Indigenous Arts of North America, um, Arts of Africa, and Arts of Oceania, uh, kind of what people refer to as like a classic AOA department or Arts of uh, Africa, Oceania, and the Americas. Um, however, we keep them very separate. We uh, intentionally do so so that we, they have their own identity uh, within each each department or within each collection. Um, they're not, they're not even shown in the same buildings or on the same floors in the, ga- in the galleries. So, um, but I would say that our, um, the primary focus of our department is indigenous arts of North America. Okay, great. Fantastic. So being the curator of a native American uh, exhibits and part of the culture elements that are tied to that, um, tell us a bit about your own creative and curatorial practice. What guides you or informs you on the art that you curate for the museum? What guides me really is relationships. Um, you know, I've um, for a long time had relationships in, in Native communities, even though I'm not Native, um, and developed from a really young age just this um, understanding of um, kind of the responsibility and care that needs to be taken uh, when, when working with not just Indigenous um, collections, because Indigenous collections are innately tied to Indigenous people. And um, Essentially, it's in order to to function as a curator working with indigenous collections, um, you really need to start with relationships it's with your local indigenous community, with the originating communities of where um, the art comes from, um, and then you know you, building long term relationships that are are lasting and sustaining, um, which are incredibly rewarding. Um, so, like, yes, it's about the art, but it's it's also very much about the people. Is there one tribe specific that you focus on or do you focus on all the national tribes in the U.S. or indigenous people of North America? Yeah, so at the Denver Art Museum, we have art from artists from 250 indigenous nations across what is now the United States and Canada. Um, Mm -hmm. So in some ways, I kind of have to become a generalist. However, my background is um, working um, in the Southern Cheyenne community in Oklahoma, as well as um, other relationships that I built with other um, people from a variety of other tribes. But my my closest connections are with um, Ponca people and Cheyenne people. Okay. What, get, what got you interested in doing this in your field? You know, it started um, just an interest in indigenous art started like at a really young age, probably around like when I was 12 or so. Um, and I grew up in New York, which um, does not seem like the bastion of where you might get interested <laughs> in this. Um, however, from a really young age, I started going to um, kind of uh, East Coast powwows and had the opportunity to start meeting indigenous people, which then um, after my freshman year in college uh, in New York, I ended up transferring to the University of Oklahoma, primarily because I wanted to be closer to native communities and you know spend time in community. Um, 
by that point, I had kind of de- uh, developed relationships with a particular fa- uh, Ponca family, the Roughface family, um, you know, from from Oklahoma, and um, yeah, just started kind of um, you know going to events. Um, even when I was an undergrad at OU, um, I uh, uh, it was the only non-native guy who sang on a southern drum um, that we met every week and practiced and. Um, but yeah, so I, you know, I'd, I'd go and, you know, go off and sing at powwows all the time, uh, when I was an undergrad. And so it, it just kind of built from there. Um, and then I was at an, a, an event, actually at the Ponca Halushka, um, years and years ago, I got it. I had to have been like sometime in the mid to late nineties or so when, um, I met someone who was in the museum field and they kind of encouraged me to, um, pursue that as a career. And so, I uh, eventually from there, uh, after I graduated from OU, I went to Texas Tech University in Lubbock uh, for the museum science program there, then moved to D.C. for a while and worked for the government uh, before going back to OU in Norman uh, to study my doctorate or for my Ph.D. So you got the bug and just continued forward. Indeed. Yeah. Yeah. I always say that um, everything that I did in preparation for what I'm doing now either made me highly qualified for what I'm doing or only marginally qualified for any other job in the world. Uh, so I really put my eggs in one basket. <laughs> All right. So how is important is self-representation in the Native American art, cultural and heritage aspect that you incorporate? And how does it speak to non-Native uh, audiences that come into the museum? Yeah, so it's incredibly important to um, use and in- indigenous ways of knowing, being, seeing, and doing um, as a guiding light for all the work that we do, um, which ha- very much includes the, um, you know, uh, collaboration with indigenous, um, you know, advisors locally, again, source communities, the artists themselves, um, you know, in our indigenous arts galleries, we have uh, videos with artists talking about their practice and their, their experiences as indigenous people. We have um, a community, like community voices label program, where um, uh, either people from our local community or people that they connected with uh, us with, like from other uh, originating communities, uh, had an opportunity to kind of like write a label for the gallery and include whatever they wanted uh, in it to give visitors um, kind of a first-person perspective of um, how that art is actually impacting community. Uh, actually, a very clear example of that was we have a painting by the artist Fritz Scholder uh, titled Massacre in America Wounded Knee, which is a really, really tough, tough painting. Uh, it, you know, really hits you, hits you in the heart. Um, and so what we did is we connected with a Lakota rapper named Terrence Jade uh, from the Wounded Knee community. And we at, gave him the prompt, how does this painting make you feel? And the response that he gave was was absolutely beautiful. It was, you know, talked about the pain and the trauma, but it also talked about perseverance and survivance. And you know, so using the the um, the words of people from the communities to talk about these issues, it 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 has so much more weight than if, like, you know, me as a curator tried to write it myself. Um, but it also right. it's coming directly from the source. exactly it's, yeah yeah there's like, yeah so it's not, it's not even like so sometimes the 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 messaging is coming directly from artists who are giving you information about what inspired them or what what they want to convey Their perspective, but but, yeah. but oftentimes we're also talking about community members and they're talking about how the art impacts them today so it's 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 wonderful because you know in our galleries we show contemporary art by indigenous artists right alongside of historical arts. Uh, we don't separate the two um, because we find that 
historical arts can sometimes provide context for contemporary art, while at the same time, the contemporary art can um, activate the historical arts to make them meaningful to people's lives today. And by using the voices of people who are, you know, part of the communities today, um, it really grounds it. And so when Indigenous people come to our galleries, um, our hope is that they feel seen and valued and respected. Um, and when non-Native people come to our galleries, um, they're given a, um, a very, very much a first-person perspective about how these arts tie to uh, lived experience in Native communities. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Have you? Do you feel that since you started your career, you've seen the ebb and flow? It's like it's the we're, Native American art and cultures. It's the it factor that kind of takes a wayside. Why do you think that is? So <laughs> there's a, I actually just wrote an essay uh, for a museum catalog uh, for a small mm-hmm. museum here in, in Colorado. That was about that. Um, that was, it was for an exhibition curated by Greg Deal, who's Pyramid Lake Paiute. Um, and I was talking about um, kind of these, well, I, I refer to it as the wave metaphor where the waves come crashing in and then they recede again. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because if you look back in time at um, the attention that indigenous arts have gotten, from the non-native art world. Um, I think that's what is like, you have to make that clarification because indigenous arts in indigenous communities has always been there. It's always been valued. It's always been, you know, cherished and, and respected. Um, but in the, uh, you know, let's say the broader contemporary art world or, you know, what, what's happening at any given point in time, there have been these ebbs and flows, um, which if you look back into like, let's say the 1930s, you know, um, there was a moment in the 1930s, you know, leading up to uh, 1939, there was the uh, Golden Gate exhibition at the San Francisco World's Fair that was an 80,000 square foot exhibition of indigenous arts and culture, um, put on to the world. Um, and it brought in indigenous artists who were actually actively working there, you know, meeting the visitors who were coming through. So it was putting like faces and names with the arts so, mm-hmm. to, um, so there weren't so anonymous anymore um, to non-Native people. And then, you know, then that led up to the 1941 exhibition at MoMA called Indian Art of the United States. Um, that was a transformational moment for Indigenous arts. Um, I mean, you look back at, from today's standards, you know, there's a lot of problems with it. But, um, you know, right. the intention really was to introduce Indigenous arts to the world as um, as fine art. Um, but then, you know, World War II hit and then everything kind of went away. Um, and then there was a, like, you know, by 1960, Oscar Howe was appearing on This Is Your Life out in, in, uh, in Hollywood because um, mm-hmm. he was at, you know, the peak of, of um, you know, what he was doing. And just a couple of years prior, there was like the big controversy with, when Oscar Howe's work was rejected from the Philbrick Art Annual um, for not, right. not looking Indian enough. Indian enough, right? Yeah. Which, ironically, <laughs> two of the three judges who said that were Native people, um, and mm-hmm. he had actually also submitted more abstract art years prior and won. So it was just—it happened to me this moment. But interpretation, yeah, yeah. But <laughs> like that particular moment um, actually led to the Rockefeller Commission that was studying, um, you know, Indigenous arts and what it could become, which then directly connects to the founding of Institute of American Indian Arts in Santa Fe. in I think it was like 19, what, 62, I think that it opened. Something um, like that. Yeah. Yeah. So then, then you have a moment, let's just say with like TC Cannon and Fritz Shoulder at the like late sixties and the early seventies 
then by the late 70s, it kind of died off a little bit. And, you know, you get these few little pockets of moments where there are some people who are kind of rising up again, but it, it's only mm-hmm. few people um, and then kind of wet, and then going away again. But I would say that sometime around 2012, 2013, a new wave came in and it is staying and it's actually conti- the groundswell that, you know, behind it is just getting bigger and bigger. Right. Um, and there's a variety of uh, reasons that it could be, but, you know, in, in many ways, I, I attribute some of it to, um, you know, the, uh, um, you know, the Black Lives Matter, um, you know, protests and this, the uh, intersectionality that kind of came out of that, where it, mm-hmm. groups were coming together and demanding that um, voices that have been intentionally marginalized um, by dominant white society um, that space needs to be made for them and that these voices need to be heard. Right. And so museums are waking up, collectors are waking up, curators are waking up. Um, so there, like you, um, Jean Quick Smith is just, just opened up her retrospective at the Whitney. And that was, that's the first major show that the Whitney has ever done of indigenous art artist. So yes, everyone's like, you know, wonderfully happy for uh for john quickly c smith um but it makes you think why haven't many institutions been focused on this for so long um i'm mm-hmm. i'm what, li- what, what what's the time ele- what's the time elements that have brought it together to make it more recognized i guess yeah well i mean it, it's all these things together um right. but you know it's it's a combination of indigenous artists and, um, well, I have, you can even argue that Twitter, um, until Elon Musk took over it, um, <laughs> you know, was really important for getting indigenous voices out. You know, looking at, um, you know, um, the, uh, you know, the water protectors, you know, fighting against the Dakota Access Pipeline and the, the voice that indigenous people were able to share out with the world. So that was what, like 2016 mm-hmm. or something like that. So yeah, there, right. there's a number of, of social events I think that happened that actually gave indigenous indigenous people have always had a voice. It's just non-native people have ignored it for so long, and right. so. Right. Um, but there's finally an opportunity um, where it can't be ignored anymore because it's so loud. And um, I think you know systemic change is certainly happening. Um, I'm a little blessed at the Denver Art Museum because my department in 2025, we're hitting our hundredth anniversary. So, um, we, wow. we were founded in 1925 and for decades, we were the only major art museum collecting indigenous arts. Uh, but not only that, we weren't, we weren't focused necessarily on like old historic, you know, salvage ethnography, trying to preserve the ways of the past kind of thing. We always focused on what was being made at any given point in time. So in the 20s, we were collecting work made in the 1920s. In the 30s, we collected work from the 1930s. And we've always done that. So the fact that we have been you know, so focused on contemporary art now is actually not a deviation at all from the historic practices of our institution. Um, but because we focused on this, um, we have an incredible 20th century indigenous art collection into the 21st century. Um, and so we, we have a lot to, to work with. Um, our, our indigenous art collection is about 18,000 works of art. Um, and that includes like, like hundreds of works from, uh, like Pueblo modernist painters, you know, working from the studio school at Sandra Lafonso, um, self-taught group, um, you know, a lot of, um, you know, Pueblo and Hopi pottery, um, Navajo textiles, but, you know, um, arts from the 
the Plains region, like, you know, regionally, I, I would say the Southwest, the Plains and the Northwest Coast are probably the three largest um, regional groups with, that are represented in our collection. But now is there a rotating ex- exhibition and exhibits that you uh, filter through on an annual basis or are there permanent? So we, we take a variety of um, approaches to this. So we have a permanent gallery space, which is about 20,000 square feet of exhibition space dedicated to indigenous mm-hmm. arts in North America. Um, and so right now we have about 600 works on exhibit, um, because of the nature of a lot of, especially the historical works, um, indigenous arts or things, you know, that are made from from textiles or, you know, like things like that. Um, Mm -hmm. we do have to do rotations quite often. So we reopened our galleries after a renovation in October, 2021. And we've just started doing a little bit of rotations in the galleries of things that are, you know, light sensitive that we need to take down and, um, you know, put other things up in it, in their place. Right. But uh, we actually just had a meeting where we went walked through the galleries to identify things that need to be rotated in the next uh, our next coming fiscal year. And so, because of the nature of the material we we have in in our galleries, we have to do a lot of rotations. And so, the intention is that um, our galleries will remain dy- dynamic and active. You know, you, you if you come in at one point, you come back six months later. There's going to be whole sections that are different than what you saw before. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not going to be a static gallery that's up for years and years and years and years. Um, I remember growing up in New York and, you know, I'd go to museums in New York City um, and some of the exhibitions were the same when I was a kid as they were, you know, a couple of years right. ago. When I went to look. <laughs> Collecting dust are still there. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, you know, but that's not what we do here. We, you know, as a way of protecting the objects, we rotate it, but it also gives us opportunities to dive deeper into our collection, I'll also continue to collect and to show work that is, uh, you know, recent acquisitions in the museum. So, um, well, that's so. Do you go out and uh, procure uh, pieces? Um, what is your process of actually curatorial process in, in collecting pieces for the museum that are permanent or on loan or part of exhibits? So, in our um, our permanent gallery, almost everything is from our permanent collection um, at the museum. We all currently only have two works out of about 600 that are on loan. Um, I mean, but they're, they're very strategic loans um, to fill in, you know, parts of stories that we want to tell in the gallery. Um, but yeah, so as a curator, um, well, I, I should say I'm, I'm blessed that there's two curators in our department. So my colleague, Dakota Hoska, uh, she's a citizen of the Lakota Nation. Um, and she's an associate curator here at the Denver Art Museum. And so we work together to, um, you know, for these, these gallery rotations and exhibitions that we do, um, but also in, in collecting art. So um, there's a variety of ways that we do it. I and mean, we have very limited actual money to go and purchase things. So we use the limited money we have for strategic purchases to fill in gaps in the collection that we're probably less likely to get through donations. Um, and some of that might be because for a variety, I mean, it could be a variety of reasons. Um, but part of it is, is we often commission artists to do work for the collection. Oh, really? Um, you know, so just in recent years, um, uh, Jeremy Frey is a Passamaquoddy basket weaver. Um, we, he made a monumental piece for us. Um, Jamie Akuma made an, um, incredible, uh, um, uh, this, I don't know if you know Jamie's work, but she does these, uh, figurative, um, soft sculpture, dolls uh, essentially but the uh this one is a mother granddaughter and a uh, grand grandmother and a granddaughter and the granddaughter is wearing miniature versions of jamie's hot couture fashion design 
Um, the um, Michael Nickel Yagalanis, who's a Haida artist, we commissioned him, or Marianne Nicholson, who's Kwakwakiwak, we commissioned her to do um, uh, a major work for our galleries. So that, that's oftentimes how we're actually using our, the funds that we have available. Um, but one of the things that we're most successful with is um, either working with collectors to build a collection with the intention that it is then donated to the museum over time or as a, as a future bequest, um, or just soliciting, you know, donations from individual donors. We also have the benefit of, you know, the long history and notoriety of the Denver Art Museum attracts people to us. So we get, you know, cold calls or emails um, from people who have a collection and they're looking to place it somewhere or individual works. And, um, you know, we, we actually decline more than we do accept um, because we do have a deep collection and um, we have to be very careful with what we're bringing into the collection because once you bring it in, you know, we have, you know, I want to make sure we're going to use the material that we're bringing in. Uh, so we're, we're very selective in what we do bring in. Um, rarely do we take like a whole collection, um, but we can, we often work with donors to select certain works that make sense for our existing collection as a way of building out uh, either holes or a new, new collecting directions. Right, right. What what do you feel is the responsibility to uh, Native American artists carrying their work and practice that are that are unique to Native American people? You know, yeah. So that's actually a really interesting uh, conversation. Um, there have there, there's always artists who are kind of like you know pushing the envelope in some things, and um, I think back to. 1969, when Fritz Scholder painted a painting called uh, uh, Indian with Beer Can, or actually, actually I'm trying to remember if yeah, Indian with Beer Can or Indian at the Bar. Uh, one is the title of the lithograph and one's the title of the painting. Um, right. The painting is actually owned by Ralph Lauren. <laughs> but, um, oh, okay. the, uh, but when that painting came out, um, it was highly controversial because, you know, it's showing an, a, a Native person at a bar um you know i think you you know most people would probably extrapolate suggesting that it uh the person's drunk and then that reinforces mm -hmm. stereotypes and all um but fritz shoulder talked about how he wanted to uh quote paint the indian real not red that that end quote that's like actually what he uh what he was focusing on so he did a like a lot of his work throughout the late 60s and and um you know through most of the 70s up till about 1980, I think, um, he would re, re, he would come back to kind of really challenging subject matters. And uh, like I mentioned earlier, um, the painting Massacre in America Wounded Me, um, you know, it's a it's a rough painting, you know, that is really evokes a lot of emotion. Um, and prior to that, you know, there was, um, you know, he, he was reacting against, like, say, the studio school, you know, from out of Santa Fe and what he called like overly romantic and quote, schmaltzy paintings of, uh, of, uh, native people. So, so yeah, so you have, you have moments there. Um, but then you have like, you know, thinking kind of more recently, there is, there's, there's been conversations, I guess, where maybe an artist is trying to talk, be critical of something from their own community or, um, incorporating something into their work that, um, that, uh, you know, illuminates something that is not, necessarily in a favorable light for native people um and then you know in some cases they're being challenged or or maybe they're they're sharing something that has like 
you know, knowledge that not everyone's supposed to have access to um, in their work. So that's a, you know, especially as a non-native person, that's a conversation I'm kind of, I step back from and because right. my voice should not be in part, part of that discussion. Um, but on the other hand, it's, it's challenging because if I'm collecting art for the museum, what, you know, like I, I think about this a lot, like what's my responsibility because there is kind of like an editorial role in that, you know, because if mm-hmm. I'm, if I am collecting it, and then showing the art, what does that say? But if I'm not collecting the art and showing or showing the art, what does that say? So mm-hmm. I can't completely divorce myself from the conversation, um, but I can let indigenous voices guide the conversation and, you know, in the directions that where we ultimately go, um, because it, it's, it's a necessity. Um, the, uh, in terms of not showing everything in a, in a great light, um, well, it, this is more kind of like an artist who's thinking through something, but we have a painting by Julie Buffalo head, uh, who's, who's a Ponca artist who lives up in um, St. Paul, uh, Minnesota area. And she had done a series of paintings that were related to kind of the Ponca clan system. And for um, one of the paintings, it's a diptych and it is um, uh, you can find this on our website. I'm pretty sure it's called um, little medicine and magic. And it re- relates to the medicine clan. And it has um, kind of a, well, it looks like a red fox, but um, you could call it a red fox or a coyote, but um, wearing like a 1950s, like um, uh, like housewife dress with, you know, high heels okay. on, carrying a handbag. Right. and um, But off to the side are these uh, skunks that are kind of stacked on top of each other. And they had stolen her lipstick and were kind of drawing on themselves with it. And uh, skunk is a, a symbol of, of the medicine clan, uh, kind of the animal representation of it. But what, right. what they were drawing were these, um, uh, people refer to them as cotton cosmic symbols, basically a star that historically speaking, um, men of particular standing among the Ponca were able to um, have um, a woman of their choice, usually either wife or oldest daughter or something like that, tattooed with what was referred to as an honor mark, either like on the back of their, like, on like, you know, the fleshy part of their, their palm or, um, um, or on the forehead. And so Julie is thinking about what does it mean to be an indigenous feminist? You know, because looking at the 1950s dress and the lipstick and the high heels, mm-hmm. talking about the expectations of women and how they should present themselves. Your representation. But yeah. thinking back at the, this, like this honor mark, she questions like whose honor was it? You know, did women have agency in this, you know, was it an honor to them or was it kind of, you know, um, pushed on them? And it's just her thinking through this idea of, of um, feminism from an indigenous perspective or, or more specifically a Ponca's perspective um, mm-hmm. where she doesn't have an answer to it. It's just she's kind of thinking through it and like, you know, how would she feel if someone asked or wanted to put a tattoo on her and she did or did not have agency in the decision-making process. So, I mean, that's kind of a a subject matter that you don't often see in indigenous arts where an artist is actually um, thinking about and being critical of historical practices um, from their tribe rather than just um, accepting them as, you know, this is the way it was and everything is fine. Um, so there is a little bit of attention, a little bit of uncertainty, um, but that was why she painted it, is to kind of think through the issue. 
Interesting. Very thought-provoking and also her perspective of, of displaying that through her art. Do you think uh, some of the narrative American art that's being formed now is a form of decolonization? You know, decolonization, um, th there's a number of indigenous people I know, um, such as like Joe Horsecapture and Jamie Powell and a variety of many, many others who um, are, they, they push back against the idea of decolonization and favor more indigenization um, to indigenize spaces rather than to decolonize them especially when it comes to museums. Um, museums are inherently colonial institutions. Um, so unless you're planning to tear things down and start all over, right. uh, which is probably, I'm sure many people would love that. But on the other hand, right. is it, is it, is it, is it likely, or is it, is it a reality? Um, and so, but indigenizing spaces, using indigenous thoughts and philosophies to guide, um, you know, decision-making, um, using indigenous ways of like um, power sharing or or even knowledge sharing, um, you know there are ways of um, that are that could add so much to institutions um, uh, by incorporating you know these ideas and these philosophies into what we're doing. That I, I think um, you know is a great way forward. Um, I I always mess it up, but um, in there's a um, uh, Afro-Caribbean scholar uh, who is um, who works in the Netherlands named Wayne Modest, and he was one of the voices early on in the decolonization movement, um, and really, really uh, fantastic guy, you know, great thinker. And um, he presents the idea of decolonization um, as um, he uses like this metaphor of uh, you know in Japanese ceramics. There's a technique. I think it's like uh, I always mess up the name of it, but it's like. Uh, a kitsukuro or something like that but when when a ceramic breaks and then it's put back together um with, sure. with kind of gold and it, the idea is that it is now more beautiful because it had been broken and he 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 argues that you know you shouldn't hide the the painful history you shouldn't um you know try to hide those the tensions that have been in the past but by coming together and agreeing to make something more beautiful going forward that is really um that's a that's a it's a beautiful metaphor but it's also like a very positive way forward um that i i think is is just yeah it's a really it's a strong way forward um and i use that in many ways in a lot of the work that i do so even like you know if we have um tribal delegations visiting who want to do consultations for nagpra you know native american graves protection repatriation act um one of the first things I always say is at the very beginning, I say, um, I want our relationship to be stronger at the end of the day than it is right now. And that kind of, for me, sets the tone about what my, my intentions are. Um, because if the goal is truly to develop a relationship and to have a stronger relationship at the end, it kind of, it, uh, it, it signals that, you know, I'm going into these discussions with like a, a good heart and good intentions, mm -hmm. um, and, that, and purity and honesty. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. yeah. Yeah. So, um, but that to me is like, you know, by the building of the relationship, that is, um, part of the healing process that needs to happen. Absolutely. No, it's it's a good way. To, I like the I like your uh, your saying. It's a, I'll have to remember that next time. <laughs> uh, do you feel there's a continued story that's being shared among Native American artists right now? Is there an ongoing story or theme in their work? Oh, you know, um, I mean, to some degree, 
with some yes but you know indigenous mm-hmm. uh, i'm speaking to the, the choir here but you know indigenous people are incredibly <laughs> diverse right you know you have what 574 tribes in the u.s another yeah. 600 or we're not just one Canada, <laughs> you know um uh so there's so much diversity i mean heck even within the tribes you can't get anyone to agree on anything so it's <laughs> true it's, you know so there's so many perspectives that um you know like yeah like um I did an exhibition a couple of years ago called Each Other, Marie Watt and Chinupa Hotskaluger. And I intentionally paired Marie and Chinupa because of the way that they um, they collaborate in their art practice. But what was, not, was partly interesting to me is they collaborated in drastically different ways um, in how they actually came together and engaged community, where Marie mm-hmm. was like getting everyone around as a table and sharing stories and talking while everyone's kind of working together. Whereas Chinupa had... She, he would create these like one minute long instructional videos on how to make something simple and then ask people to make them and send it to him. Then he then incorporates into a larger work. So um, I brought them together for this exhibition and one half of it was Marie's work. The other half was Chinuba's work. But at the very center, there was this um, gigantic wolf sculpture that was like a metal armature that was covered in a pelt made from um, embroidered bandanas that over 800 people from around mm-hmm. the world made and submitted and were incorporated into the sculpture. Um, so it really combined Marie's and Chinupa's practice in, in bringing it together. So, you know, but some artists are very collaborative in their approach. Other ones are very solitary in their approach. Um, and like, you know, some, some artists are focusing on identity. Some of them are focusing on, on aspects of history, but, you know, there's so many, um, indigenous artists that are working today that, you know, I mean, they're, they're, they're just dealing with, with life problems and, and like life issues. Um, Everyday life. Yeah. (laughs) yeah, So, you know, it could be, you know, about environmental issues. It can be about, you know, land rights or water rights or even fishing rights. So it could, um, Mm -hmm. it could be about, you know, representation in a variety of different media, but it could also be about, um, you know, traumas, past experiences, future experiences, mm-hmm. um, creating a world and that you want it like us to move towards or uh, mm-hmm. looking at indigenous futurism, providing like alternate wor- ways of, uh, um, of seeing reality. Um, so it, I would say that the way that indigenous artists are engaging um, the art that they make and the themes that they explore are just as varied as the people themselves. Mm-hmm. How is the overall Native American art scene in Denver at the museum? Uh, so, our, as I mentioned, we have about 18,000 works of indigenous art. So that in itself represents about 20% of the whole museum's collection. So wow. our, our identity is innate, as an institution is innately tied to indigenous arts. So mm-hmm. we regularly, you know, not only do we dedicate so much gallery space for um, permanent galleries. Oh, and I was alluding to this earlier, but never really got to it. We don't only show indigenous arts just in our indigenous arts galleries. We um, incorporate indigenous arts into like architecture and design galleries or fashion and textiles or Western American art, contemporary art, um, photography, you know, like depending on, on um, wide spectrum. Yeah. But we also have like temporary exhibition spaces. So right, right now um, we have um, uh, an exhibition called um, speaking with light that is a indigenous photography show that was organized by the Eamon Carter Museum in Fort Worth, um, but co-curated by Will Wilson, who's um, a Navajo photographer. And so um, 
Yeah, so not only do we have our 20,000 square foot of exhibition space and those other like 6,500 feet uh, temporary exhibitions, but like I said, we have work incorporated into other permanent galleries. So it's it's very much a yes and approach. Um, yes, we are focusing on indigenous, indigenous arts in, in um in dedicated galleries, but we are also including them uh, in the dialogues that are happening in other galleries. So part of your collection and what's come through in some of the exhibits that you've had, what pieces would you say have gotten the most attention that you were really surprised by? Well, surprised by? Oh, that's... A- I think did, I, I think I didn't expect that. Yeah, I think I think the easy <laughs> that came from left. Field. Yeah, the easier question is probably um, you know which ones um, have gotten the most attention and are you know like that I fully expected. Um, right. Like, for example, like we own um, the painting by Fritz or excuse me by um, by um, Kent Monkman uh, titled "The Scream," which shows. Canadian, uh, Canadian mounted police and priests and nuns ripping children away from their parents to send off to residential right. schools. And that painting um, is kind of taken on a life of its own because of social media. And mm-hmm. it has grown over the, like it was made in 2017, early 2017. And since then uh, it has become synonymous with the issue of residential schools and like the, uh, the the mass graves that have been found at residential schools and kind of putting mm-hmm. a putting an image in people's mind, like burning it into their mind. So when they hear the issue, they see this painting in their mind. Um, actually, a couple, almost like two years ago or so, um, uh, the BBC wrote an article, unbeknownst to us, about this painting and talking about how um, it's one of few paintings in art history that have transcended what it is as a painting and have have come to be the visual like like reminder of an atrocity and you know mm-hmm. uh, they put it in it's a very prolific piece I, i've seen it yeah so yeah and they, exactly which one you're yeah they put it in the context of like picasso's guernica and like um uh bansky's um les mis that he did on the london embassy um or french french embassy in london um works by david and but yeah but kent monkman an indigenous artist like is uh you know his work is now being held in that in that kind of same regard, which is is pretty special. Um, but in terms of other things that it, like surprised me, like you know, I would say that you know I'm so immersed in the indigenous art world that, and I love so much of it, you know, from a variety of different media. Um, that like when we commissioned Jeremy Frey to make that basket I mentioned earlier, um, you know, I loved it, and I knew anyone who knew anything about indigenous arts loved it, but it's blown people away, you know, just from any walk of life, you know, who have no background necessarily in, in, you know, indigenous arts. It's just this masterful like creation that he made. That's, you know, just like, there's a sense of uh, uh, perfection, you know, with, without being, you know, perfect, if you you know what I mean? Um, Yeah. So, I mean, things like that, um, you know, I, I was really pleasantly surprised to see how, how much it uh, resonated with people. Um, but even like, you know, again, I, I, I shouldn't, I'm not surprised about this because I, I just saw the beauty in it so early, but like Diani Whitehawk, um, we have a painting of hers called uh, Untitled uh, Quiet, Str- or Quiet Strength 2, which is this large canvas painting of a series of um, small white lines that are, in, oh, they, they're not even white, they're just, they're pale shades of varying colors on a gold field. Mm-hmm. But it represents the um, that 
kind of quiet, peaceful, meditative space in beadwork or quillwork um, or nantillium shell undress that uh, indigenous women, when they were making these, it's kind of those meditative moments between the busy, loud, colorful design elements. It's the background color. Like, so like the thoughts and the prayers when people are just like, you know, just going and doing all this background color work. Um, that's when the prayers go in. That's when, the, you know, because you don't need to like focus on, the, you know, your beat count or, or I mean, you do, you do, but you don't have to focus on like right. creating a pattern. You can just kind of get into this beautiful space. Um, and it's it's a way of um, for Diani to uh, acknowledge that quiet strength of indigenous women um, throughout throughout history and going into the future. Um, but to me, like I understand all, all those connections. But again, it's, it's just always you know, fantastic to see visitors who get it too, who maybe don't have a background in it, uh, which means like it, it's just proof there that um, indigenous artists can speak to any audience and through their art can really, um, you know, uh, just, it, it just hits home. It, um, you know, there's a little bit of a role of a curator to help people, um, find some of those universal experiences, you maybe by asking questions or asking people to think about their own lives and how this might uh, reflect in there. But quite honestly, you know, indigenous artists are so damn good. I don't have to work that hard at it. It's just, it's, uh, you know, uh, it just comes to you. <laughs> well, it's not even come to me. It's just like they're, they're, they're the work is so oftentimes accessible. Um, I think that that's, it's, that adds to the beauty of it. Although I will say, so this is, um, you know, Jeffrey Gibson and I did a project a couple of years ago. It opened in, 20, in, in 2018 at them called um, Like a Hammer. It was like a Jeffrey Gibson uh, exhibition that focused on his work from about, um, let's just say, 2010 to about 2017 or so it was the body of work there. And when Jeffrey and I were talking about the exhibition, uh, one of the frustrations that he shared with me was that most of the time when he was talking to a non-native audience, he basically had to give an Indian Art 101 class lesson to them to provide, give them the, the basic background to even begin to understand his work. But when, but it's, it's an exhausting process. And I know a lot of indigenous artists have to do the same thing or, or feel that they have to do the same thing, Correct. suggesting that, you know, most non-native people don't have the background knowledge to even begin to understand what they're doing. And, but, you know, Jeffrey and I, when we're talking about it, you know, it was more of a, you know what, that's, that's, that's not Jeffrey's problem. Like he should not be held back by the ignorance of, you know, the larger world around them who have not put in the effort to learn about indigenous histories and culture and, you know, um, and, and it's to the viewer to figure it out. Yeah. Yeah. You know, but, but it was, it was almost like it was a very freeing moment for him, I think, um, to basically say, you know what, it's not my responsibility to do that. And so in the exhibition, we left some breadcrumb trails, if you know what I mean, um, right. in the gallery to kind of give people something that they can like sink their teeth into and understand that there's so much more to this than they're immediately getting but really putting the burden on the visitors to do the work, you know, because if they don't know the background, we gave them enough clues to know where to go start looking for it. Mm -hmm. But it's not Jeffrey's work should not, and no indigenous artist's work should be held back 
because of the, uh, the lack of understanding that non-native people have for the art. Well, you kind of, I mean, for me personally, I, I, I sort of blame the educational system because what they know about Native American art is two textbooks and it's very homogenous that we're all one tribe. Um, so they don't have an understanding of the vast enormity of different cultures that have come together that are described as Native American. Yeah. I mean, well, even just the fact that there's a lot of Americans who don't know that Native people exist. <laughs> you yeah, know, so, we're still here. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, like, I mean, like, like the fact that, like, you know, you should not have to prove your existence to even, like, as a starting point for people to engage your art, right? Um, True. <laughs> so, but, you know, I think one of the fantastic things that's happening now is because, like I said, you know, you know the voices that are now amplified through social media um, and the in, in, um, increased representation that you're now finding in institutions and in galleries um people are waking up and saying, oh, yeah, this is incredible work. Um, mm. And it, it's, you know, for someone who's been in the field for so long, you know, you just like, you can't do anything but chuckle. You know, it's like, well, yeah, we've right. been telling you for so long that this is like <laughs> great stuff. But, you know, but the fact that like Jean-Quick D.C. Smith could go from like um, not even being represented in like, you know, all major collections to suddenly having a retrospective at the, uh, um, at the Whitney, it goes to show that the art was never the problem. You know, she, she's got over what, 50 or more, um, probably going in, you know, 60 years of work that's probably included right. in that show. And it's always been damn good. It's just, um, and the fact that it's now going into a show like this and, you know, um, and Jean had like, um, you know, a lot of back work that was still in her possession that, you know, as, mm -hmm as her name started getting back out there now, you know, people were voraciously acquiring it. And um, so it like, so museums that have ignored it for years are suddenly buying the things that she had been creating for all those years. <laughs> so again, it's not the art that was the problem. Um, it's right, not right. that indigenous <laughs> artists are suddenly miraculously doing amazing work. It's always been good or fantastic. Great. It's just mm. the, um, you know, I feel like there's, always been this sense of insecurity in the role of you know galleries and collectors and museum curators and museum directors or whatever that may be um because um the art hadn't been vetted through the contemporary art world meaning that it hadn't been bought by all the richest white collectors correct um, correct but is that the barometer we should be using to determine what yeah. good art is? No. It's, what is the what is the worth? Is the worth the art itself or the price tag on it? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, uh, well, now the price tags are actually are skyrocketing. So, yeah. <laughs> like, so that that's actually worked itself out in some way. Um, you know, yeah. There's never been a moment when indigenous artists have been able to, uh, um, you know, get fairly compensated for the work that they're doing. Mm-hmm. So uh, we talked about uh, pieces that have gotten attention. What are some of the most poignant pieces that uh, are in the collection at uh, Denver? Well, the, I mean, I, I mentioned uh, like a few of them um, already, like the Scream by Monkman and mm -hmm. um, like Fritz Shoulders Massacre and Mark and Wounded Me. But there's, uh, there's a variety of other works that are either going like a very positive direction or a very dark direction. Um, mm -hmm. like we have a work by Sonia Keller Combs. It's actually a series of 35 works that create a series, um, called credible that 
each panel of it represents um, one of 35 uh, indigenous communities in Alaska where the Catholic Church has admitted to, quote unquote, credible accounts of abuse against indigenous children. And from a distance, it's this beautiful, serene um, piece that just like captivates you and, and brings you in. But the closer you get, um, you notice that there's like this stitching into the surface of the work that um, creates almost like a festering wound on the landscape. Um, mm. And including in, in the label copy, each individual um, panel has a title that's like it says credible, the name of the, of the town or village, and then the population. And then under it, it lists all of the names of the um, these credible, you know, uh, like the clergy or lay people from the church who um who catholic church admitted had credible um Correct. accounts against them um but and that in itself is gut-wrenching but when you actually look at them and you see mm-hmm. this name william t mcintyre william t mcintyre william t mcintyre just all the way across that individual was moved from community to community to community and continue to um you know commit these these atrocities against indigenous children. So, I mean, like something like that is just like incredibly gripping. Um, on the flip side of that, um, like we have a lot of Fritz Shoulder paintings in our collection. So I'm going to use another example from him, but um, we have a painting titled, um, titled Indian Power from 1972 um, that shows um, a native guy with long braids on like this purple horse, but with his fist up in the air, uh, kind of mm-hmm. reminiscent of, um, you know, the 1968 um, Olympic Games, in Mexico City, um, right. um, you know, with the Black Power you know, f- uh, fist up in the right. um, But so, the, but this is like a sense of empowerment, you know. It, so after you've gone through all this dark subject matter, you um, that's kind of one of the last things you see before you move on to another section is the sense of uh, survivance of um, the uh, acknowledging that Indigenous people have, you know. They have power. They have um, they have pride in, in who they are, and um, yeah, it, it's a kind of a very positive message um, that mm-hmm. uh, launches people off from. You know, I, I think there's other works, like say historical works in our collection, that um, mm-hmm. the stories behind them are so they're so like they're so important for people to understand. Um, not just because of the connection between the art and the people, but also some of the histories that go along with it. For years, we've had this um, this carved uh, welcome figure in our collection that comes from a Kwakwaka community, um, uh, King of Inlet in um, what is now British Columbia. And it originally, it actually had a, um, it has hands up in the air and it had originally mm-hmm. had a, a um, like a wooden version of a broken copper um, in it in his uh in the hands uh which is long long since rotted away but this particular uh welcome figure we've had up in the gallery for like since like late 60s or so and it had very little interpretation with it it just we knew where it came from we knew like how we got it and you know we shared that information but when we were working with marianne nicholson who's a kwakwakwak artist from kingdom inlet from that actual community um she knew the history of the piece and she was able to share that with us. And it has to do with, um, there's a chief of the tribe uh, named Johnny Scow who commissioned this, um, this welcome figure to be carved, which the carving of such was illegal at that time. The government had banned hmm. the, the carving of it. So even the act of it being created was a subversive act. And these welcome figures, they mark 
boundaries or territory. And so like, usually right. it's welcoming someone to someone's territory. But the reason it was made was, I think around um, just prior to 1914, the Canadian government took away these ancestral plots of land um, that are passed down through matrilineal lines and given to white farmers to, to farm on. And mm-hmm. so there was, um, of course, you know, an outcry in the community, you know, trying to you know, protest against this. There was a, um, a court case, you know, where the community took, um, you know, the government to court to challenge this, uh, these actions. Um, but Johnny Scow had this made and actually like had it set up on the land and the, the white farm, there's newspaper articles that say, Oh, you know, uh, like local tribe gifts, this beautiful thing, mm-hmm. you know, to, uh, to this white farmer. But what it was, it was a subversive act. It was like marking that as, as Kwakwakiwak territory. And um, mm-hmm. so it wasn't so much a uh, welcome figure. It was a protest figure. Um, but knowing that history is just so important because those land rights have not been resolved. There's still ongoing uh, issues with it uh, in that same community today. And so Marianne right. made a contemporary artwork that is actually in, in dialogue with that. And then we, we filmed the, um, we worked with Stephen Yazi, who's a, um, a Navajo contemporary artist. Uh, he also does videography work. Um, so Stephen created this video um, with interviews with Marianne talking about the history of this piece and, and the work that, that she ultimately created. Um, trying to um, tell these stories and bring the stories to our, our visitor just creates a, a really powerful experience within the gallery. Um, and then as you're really even leaving the Northwest Coast section, there's a quote from Marianne that says like, you know, something along the lines of uh, um, as you're leaving here, think of this place, you know, think of who is here, who's not here because you're here. Um, Correct. And it's me. It's, we're, use, uh, we're using the platform that we have really to um, let uh, indigenous people guide visitors' experience and thoughts about, you know, where they are today. Interesting. So how would you feel or how, how has Native American heritage and cultural and art influenced you to become an avenue to educate others on uh, Native American op- oppression, racism, and just the art community altogether? Um, you know, if someone ever asked me to make a list of like the five most influential people in my life, one of mm-hmm. those people would be Dr. Henrietta Mann, um, who's past president of Tri- Cheyenne Arapaho Tribal College, um, an incredible, you know, elder in the community, you know, strong ceremonial woman. And, um, when I was doing my dissertation field work, working in the Southern Cheyenne community, I had a few opportunities to kind of, um, you know, talk with her about, about things. And, you know, I had gone to um, one of the remembrance days at the Washita um, massacre site, and she was talking mm-hmm. there about Cheyenne value systems. And it really hit me. And I, like, I wanted to learn more about it. So, you know, I did a, I did an interview with her where we went in depth about Cheyenne values and, she told me the story about one of the values and that value is understanding. And she shared the story about how um, when she was a little girl, she'd done something or whatever. She doesn't remember what it was. And um, her parents were kind of getting on her and she said, well, you just don't understand me. And like, they just stopped <laughs> quiet. And like, she said that her, one of her grandparents was there who um, spoke Cheyenne. So parents translated like, to, you know, cause he wanted to know what happened. And what they ultimately told her is like, you have to understand it's not anyone else's responsibility to understand you. It's your responsibility to understand others. 
And that's the only thing that you can control in life um, is that, you know, you're you putting in the effort to learn about others mm-hmm. and to understand where people are coming from and that you should never expect people to understand you or to um, to take the time. Just like don't don't if you don't expect it, you won't be surprised if it doesn't happen. But the goal right. is actually for you to understand others. So um, that has been kind of a um, since that moment has really been a guiding um guiding post in my life um, where I am actively seeking to understand and I'm putting in the work, I'm putting in the effort to um, understand issues of diversity and, you know, different ways of, of understanding or um, um, the uh, yeah, just, you know, different perspectives that people have on things. Um, It um, in many ways, like, with with that in mind, I guess you could say it helps me navigate these spaces because it puts the burden on me. It doesn't, um, you know, I don't expect to be welcome in everywhere. I don't expect, I don't expect anything. And I also don't expect anyone to know about my past, about my credentials, about my degrees or the time that I spent in community. Mm-hmm. I, I don't expect anyone to know any of these, any of these things. I, I ex- what I expect is that I constantly need to prove myself. And especially as a non-native person in in this working in this world, um, I you know I, I often say that I, I'm constantly walking on eggshells, but I don't want it any other way because right. it keeps me focused, it keeps me um, honest and respectful, but it also um, I, I I avoid slipping into complacency where I might actually then make a, like a big mistake and. Mm-hmm. If I'm constantly seeking understanding and I'm constantly, um, you know, need to kind of prove myself in these spaces and not expect to be just given, you know, like, you know, a pass for anything, then right. it keeps me on a um, on on this path that is is rooted in respect and honesty and, um, you know, in, in kind of caring, I guess you could say. Um, and I'm, I'm because of that, I'm then less likely to just assume I know something and move forward with it without actually trying to vet the information or uh, get consensus or, you know, um, seek knowledge keepers who, you know, can guide me on things because, because even in that way, um, just because something is true, doesn't mean that I should know it, you know, um, or that I should share (laughs) it with anyone else. And I think that's actually a hard thing that non-native people often have to, to come to understand when it comes to indigenous um, you know, working with indigenous people is not all knowledge is meant for everyone. And mm-hmm. even if someone mm-hmm. does share it with me, it doesn't give me the right to share it with others. Um, so, un- but, but again, understanding is at the core of all that and, you know, understanding how, how things operate, how knowledge circulates within communities and knowledge is transmitted and who should have the knowledge and access to it um, really helps me navigate these spaces. Makes sense. Perfect sense. Well, you're welcoming, you're open and you're opening to knowledge and information. You're not closed to it. Like I know everything. So why should I hear what's being told to me? Or believe I think a lot of people are reading the book, <laughs> you know? Yeah. yeah. Or Google. Yeah, or exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, what is your biggest artistic influencers? Oh, influencers. That's a good question. Um, boy, where do you even begin on this? Um, <laughs> you know, um, pe- oh, God. 
that's such a big question. And, you know, yeah. and I also, I also, it, it, it's a little bit of a minefield <laughs> depending on who I, who I answer and who I don't answer, but. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll soften it this way. What is your favorite medium in the uh, Native American artistic world? You know, well, that you're drawn to, like even that's that you're hard. drawn to, even that's a hard question oh. <laughs> because I'll, I'll tell you why is because I was actually hired as a historic plains art specialist. Um, but since I've been here, I've done almost exclusively contemporary art projects. So, mm-hmm. um, and I, because I have to essentially become a generalist, like, you know, I, I would say I'm constantly actually trying to, um, more and more expand what, what I, I connect with and right. to intentionally learn more. Like prior to this, like working here, like I didn't have much experience at all working with say Navajo textiles or Pueblo pottery. Um, but it's, it's something that I've always appreciated, but just didn't know as much about. And so over the last, you know, you know, decade plus, I've been intentionally trying to, um, you know, um, build in those areas. Um, now, I mean, th- there's some like, you know, uh, easy answers to those questions. Like you could say, you know, like, um, you know, not that I'm the most fashionable person out there, but, you know, like, you know, Jamie Akuma is, you know, an incredible influencer in the, in the fashion world. Um, I'm, you know, I'm grateful to have been able to work with her, you know, here and there on, on, on various projects and all. Um, but, you know, like, so yeah, it's, there's also, you know, there's other artists that like, I feel like I've been able to kind of ride their coattails a little bit, you know, um, mm-hmm. just because they're doing great work. Um, yeah, like, you know, Jeffrey Gibson and like Marie Watt and Chinupon Skaluger, um, you know, in terms of the contemporary, um, contemporary art world and many, many, many more. I mean, like, um, the, yeah, some of them are, are among the group of people that are kind of leading the charge, but, you know, um, I would say that, you know, there's also really inspiring, you know, younger artists that are, um, you know, kind of coming up and doing great things today that, um, mm-hmm. are just, you know, taking advantage of, of the, of the space that we're now in. But oh boy, I, well, I, I, don't, I don't know that I can give you a great answer wall. yet on, on, <laughs> on influencers, but yeah. Oh, well, what motivates you to curate and do your job? What motivates me to curate and do my job is that um, there's so much more opportunity um, for sharing indigenous arts and perspectives with the world. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as a non-native person, you know, there's, there's, um, there's always the discussion that, you know, we need more indigenous people in these roles. Um, but, and, and not just curatorial roles, we need them in like departments of like learning and engagement or education and in, you know, marketing and IT and fundraising and like all that we need indigenous people in all aspects of this. Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, one of the key things to, is I'm thinking long-term, like, you know, the goal for me and the goal for a lot of people is to get indigenous arts and people into all spaces. Right. Um, and in order to do that, we need everyone to help. Um, where, you know, yes, it, it's fantastic that there, like, there are so many more indigenous curators like now than there were even mm-hmm. five years ago. Um, you know, which is fantastic for our field there's so many more like you know these great great ideas that they bring with them and their experiences and guiding things um but more and more you're now finding um you know american art curators incorporating some indigenous art into what they're doing or contemporary art curators doing this so um 
inevitably, if indigenous arts are going to permeate every space within an institution, we kind of need everyone in those institutions to get the experience mm-hmm. working with indigenous people. Um, and he- here at DAM, we, um, uh, in 2021, when we reopened our renovated building, one of the things we launched at, the, at that time was uh, a board approved uh, commitment to indigenous communities. And part of this commitment, um, you know, it acknowledges like, you know, um, uh, issue certain dark issues of the, from the past, uh, how museums have benefited from the displace, displacement of Native people, um, and acknowledging, of course, the people who were originally from the spa- space, but it goes in deeper and actually, um, you know, if you do a land acknowledgement, you acknowledge you're on Indigenous land, what are you then going to do? Are you going right. to give it back? Are you going to give the land back? And most museums <laughs> probably are not going to do that. But we we started with um, what are we willing to do? And so right. that, that's what led to our commitment to Indigenous communities, where we talked about these different areas of uh, focus that we're going to, you know, utilize our, our, our space and our resources and our access and programming. You know, it, it list goes on and on. But part of that is that all throughout the institution, everyone on our staff has a responsibility for helping us um, live up to that commitment to Indigenous communities. So um, uh, my colleague at uh, the First Americans Museum in Oklahoma City, uh, Heather Autone, she always talks about how relationships with Native people and institutions cannot be personality-based, so me- meaning you can't have one curator who is responsible for all the connections for the institution Correct. in Indigenous communities, because if that person leaves, then what happens, right? Um, so we're taking that to heart here, and, you know, our... Our visitor operations frontline staff, they're engaging with indigenous people. Our education or like department learning and engagement, they're in- engaging with indigenous people. Our collections management team, they're engaging. Our curatorial teams in other departments, not even just in our native arts department. Um, we also have like two, um, two indigenous board members on our board of directors, um, which, you know, it, it's bringing, you know, from the top all the way down, if you want to look at it in that kind of a hierarchy, but like at every, I should say at every facet of the museum, we have people engaging with native people. And that's something that did not happen even just a few years ago. Um, So that goes to show that um, regardless of who you are working in an institution, um, we, because of where we are, because we're, where we're located, we are on indigenous land. And everyone at the institution shares the responsibility for developing and maintaining relationships with indigenous people to respect that, um, you know, that acknowledgement. Another part of what we what you just described, how do you feel Native American art is important to society as a whole, both on the national level and also on the global scale? <laughs> indigenous arts is important, like nationally and globally, because in, um, including it in the way that like what we present is a better representation of reality. You know, um, historically, most museums, I mean, you look at the walls and you see art from dead old white men, right? Um, right. When, and like it, if indigenous arts might, may have been included at all, it was historical material, um, which s- suggested that, you know, indigenous people stopped making art or stopped mm-hmm. even being for that matter. Um, or the discovery of. <laughs> yeah. So I, I would say that, um, you know, there's so, there's so much to learn from indigenous people. There's so much diversity in knowledge, even within all these communities. 
And to have marginalized it for so long has actually been a detriment, like extreme detriment to world society because we're, we're excluding knowledge keepers, right? You know, we're, mm-hmm. we're excluding people who have um, incredible life experiences and stories that need to be like heard and need to be seen. Um, so in many ways, the exclusion has deprived the world of incredible beauty, incredible knowledge, incredible um, um, ways of thinking. And mm-hmm. by incorporating that into our galleries today, it starts to, um, you know, again, like we've been doing it for a long time at Dam, but even still, um, it's like, I think a lot of visitors to the museum would have been surprised to see indigenous arts here if they had not come before, um, because they don't often see it elsewhere. But with more and more representation happening in institutions, um, these, uh, these histories, this knowledge, this, um, the beauty is actually being shared with a much broader audience. Um, and I, I feel there's so much validity to it and so much that everyone can learn um, from it that I think it could really guide us into, um, you know, a better world society. Um, by If we're guided by indigenous philosophies and ways of knowing, um, you know, it's, it's just, it's such a beautiful thing that, you know, I, I, um, I think we can all benefit from it. I like that thought. Let's hope so. <laughs> indeed, indeed. Let's hope so. So what's next for John and Denver Art Museum? Well, um, so this is not a project I'm working on, but um, opening in July at DAM is an exhibition called Desert Rider. Um, that It looks at lowrider culture, but also in a kind of skate culture, uh, like skateboarding culture. So there, there's a lot of like Latinx representation in there, but there's also a lot of indigenous representation, like skateboards from Douglas Miles, from Patty Skateboards. Um, there's a number of um, uh, works by Caro Romero, who's Chemueve, um photographer. There's works by um, uh, Nani Chacon, um, you know, uh, that have representations of, you know, the female body and, and, and you know, car culture. Um, so th- there's really, uh, there's a really strong representation of indigenous um, uh, arts and culture in that exhibition. And it's also sp- uh, particularly an area that not as many people even know about. Um, so I, I think that that's, that's going to be a really great opportunity for people to come and see that. Um, through the end of, like towards the end of May, we have, as I mentioned, the Speaking with Light exhibition, the Indigenous Photography Show. Um, I don't know when this podcast comes out, but it might still be up for a little bit. Um, and then um, kind of like launching ahead, as I mentioned, 2025 is going to be, it's, it's the 100th anniversary of the Native Arts Department. And here at them. So we, I can't get into details yet because we haven't officially right. launched it, <laughs> but I can tell you that um, including the major uh, rotations we're going to have to do in our permanent gallery space, um, we're going to be putting on four major shows of indigenous art um, ranging yeah. from contemporary to historical works um, at the museum. And, you know, Putting on, put it on my calendar. Putting on symposia and uh, other kind of programming throughout the year. So it's definitely going to be a, a year celebrating Indigenous people and Indigenous arts. Fantastic. Definitely put it on my calendar for everyone else listening uh, also. So any last uh, last remaining remarks to share with us, John? Uh, I really just appreciate it. I just appreciate the opportunity to kind of share some of the thoughts. Um, you know, the... Uh, um, I, love to continue them in any way we can, you know, whether, you know, someone hears absolutely. it and wants to continue this in private conversation or whatever, I'm absolutely open to it. 
Um, you know, I'm an open book, so I'm happy to share anything, any perspectives that I may have um, or help people, people make connections however they, they need it. Um, so fantastic. Well, I was thrilled to have you on the show today. Thank you so much for participating and being on. And uh, I look forward to hearing more from you and the Denver Art Museum. I appreciate so it. Thank you for joining us today, John. Thank you. Pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity.